What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the Future Projection Podcast, a Baseball America podcast. It is August 18th. I'm Carlos Galazzo, joined, as always, by Ben Badler. What's going on, Ben? How you doing? It's good. It's good to good to be back. It's been a lot of busy summer travel. It's it's nice that we kind of stagger our travel during the summer. We're like, I'm on the road some, then you're on the road some, but not the most conducive for uh, a consistent podcast schedule. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll, for the rest of time, we'll just be lamenting the fact that it's tough for us to get on a consistent podcast schedule. But I do think year-over-year improvement, that's always something to uh, to keep in mind, Ben. This year was pretty consistent. It has been about a month since our last podcast after the draft, we did get a little draft review before we were fully on the road. I think probably about two or three weeks, at least between the two of us traveling, um, watching a lot of the summer circuit on the high school side for both of us. So we'll dive into some of our summer travels, what we've been up to, obviously, given that gap in time from the last podcast to now. Plenty of things have changed on the minor league side. We have a new top 100 update. We've updated our top 30s on the team side, fully implementing all of the recent draftees and a little bit of midseason movement uh, information from from players already in systems moving up and down draft boards. We have our mid system or midseason farm system rankings, excuse me, um, and just, you know, kind of steadily rolling. It doesn't feel quite as busy as the month leading up to the draft does, but. I mean, the summer is a pretty busy time in baseball. Uh, Major leagues are still going on. The college season is not rolling, but there's plenty of summer ball action for both college and high school players. There's always something to watch if you're if you care about baseball at all levels, which is the beauty of the game for me. But where do you want to start, Ben? There are a number of different places we can go to. We can really dive in wherever you want. But I'm just happy to be back on the mic and, and chatting baseball with you, man. Can we talk about the Orioles having the best farm system in baseball? yet again and the best record in the american league and somehow the best prospect in baseball again too like it's it's pretty remarkable how successful the orioles have been at drafting and developing players obviously some very major advantages being able to draft one one so you can draft an adley rushman or draft mm-hmm. a Jackson Holiday, but even in like in Holiday's case, I mean, in, in the case of Adley Rushman, I think it was pretty obvious. Like, yeah, probably everybody would have taken <laughs> Adley Rushman one one Holiday. Um, you know, at least, at least more. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't close to the same type of player as Adley. You're right. Yeah. No, I mean, I know you had him in your mock draft going to the Orioles um, a few weeks ahead. But at the same time, it wasn't like, oh, there's some obvious guy that they're going to mm-hmm. take. And now, you know, yep. one year after he was playing high school baseball, he's the number one prospect in baseball <laughs> and might be in the big leagues next year. I mean, he hasn't slowed down since getting to double A as a 19 year old shortstop. It's pretty incredible how good he's been. But then there's, you know, even, and then graduating him, uh, or excuse me, graduating Adley, graduating Gunnar Henderson graduating Grayson Rodriguez like they still have yeah. Colton Kowser and Westberg and Heston Kerstad and then you know your later picks you know Kobe Mayo international signing and Samuel Basayo who hmm. just turned 19 years old 
uh, big, big power. We'll, we'll see if he stays a catcher or ends up at first base. But, I mean, he looks like he just has a chance to hit in the middle of the lineup and potentially fit um, anywhere. And, and he has huge mm-hmm. arm strength, too. So if he can catch <laughs> even even better, but 19 years old and high A, um, I mean, they just seem like they are positioned to be a, a juggernaut in the AL for at least the next half decade. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable, actually, how much they've hit on their their players in the draft and, and just how much talent they still have in the system, like you said. I think on our most recent update, they still have seven prospects on the top 100. I believe that's the most of any team. Um, the one name that you didn't mention there that I think is, is exciting to me is Heston Kerstad, just kind of given his route and given the fact that he was another player that even more so than Jackson Holiday. Kerstad was not some consensus player at two. I think he was even like an off-the-board surprising pick at two in that draft. And we've talked about a few times how poor the 2020 class looks in hindsight if you're just lining up the best players versus how they went. So they just clearly do a nice job identifying players, developing players, looking at their first-round picks, going back to Grayson Rodriguez in 2018. It's Grayson Rodriguez at 11, Adley Rutschman, in 2020, they had Heston Kerstad at two, and then they also had Jordan Westberg at 30. They had Colton Kowser in 2021, number five overall. In 2022, they took Jackson Holiday, and then they had Dylan Beavers at number 33, and then they just took Enrique Bradfield. And so we've talked a lot about Bradfield specifically and how polarizing he was in the 2023 class, how we probably wouldn't take him in the first round. Like the fact that the Orioles picked him there makes me more excited and interested in Bradfield, just given what they've done with hitters, both again, IDing them, scouting them, and developing them. Like I'm not sure what you really do with Bradfield offensively. Is he really the player that you try to get to hit for more power? I don't think so. Um, but he does hit the ball reasonably hard. And I'm just curious to see what they're gonna do with him as a hitter, because Again, I don't know, maybe the Dodgers, the Red Sox, it sounds like they do a pretty good job hitting, but what other clubs are you stacking up with Baltimore in terms of hitting development? And do you think it's a case of just drafting high and getting access to great talent? Or do you think it's a combination of that plus just really good player development? I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but in my head, I I think of them as one of the best hitting development organizations in baseball. And (laughs) back to the big leagues, they're tied with the Dodgers for the second best record overall in baseball behind the Braves. They've got 74 wins. No other team in the American League has 74 wins. And even if you're expecting Baltimore to take a step forward this year, I don't know that anyone expected that, particularly given their lack of big offseason acquisitions. So pretty fantastic year if you're a Baltimore Orioles fan. And like knowing that the rebuild is finally coming to fruition here and the fact that maybe it's even a year early is, is pretty awesome, I would think. Yeah, I, I think it's some of both, right? It's obviously they were tanking for years. And when you are tanking and compiling all these high draft picks, it's going, you're going to be better positioned. You have access to better players. You have you have the ability to take Adley Rushman. You have the ability to take Jackson Holiday, even, you know, Kerstad and, um, and Colton Kowser. Like, you know, you're, you're taking those guys with top five picks, the, you know, teams picking in the, teens and 20s don't have the ability to take those guys so 
it's it's an advantage to to be picking at the top of the draft but at the same time a they seem to be identifying the right players pretty consistently i mean again like imagine if they had taken drew jones instead of jackson holiday right like it you know not writing off drew jones by any means but there's a pretty significant Mm -hmm. gap between those two players right now or i mean just go through you know whether it's termar johnson or elijah green or i mean honestly even if they would gone like the college route and take in a brooks lee or i mean jacob berry maybe they're even bigger gap (laughs) um in in that regard but they're you know they're taking the right players but also yeah like you know Kowser and Kobe Mayo, like these guys have made pretty significant strides in their development as hitters shoring up some of the weaknesses that they had Gunnar Henderson the same way. So, uh, you know, if you just want to write it all off as saying, Oh, well they were just tanking and that's, that's why they have all of these great players. Like, yeah, I mean, that's part of it, but it's not all of it either. I, I think they've, I don't see how you can just write off their identification and development that they've. So I kind of want to absolutely, I I agree with everything you said. I want to kind of contrast them with another team that's really been tanking for a similar period of time. I mean, going back to the year I mentioned, so let's just say 2017 here are the, the Orioles win totals in every year um, outside of the current year, 2023, 2017, the team won 75 they won 47 games the next year, 54, 25 in the shortened 2020 season, 52, then 83. So it was losing seasons and every year except for 2022. And then you look at another club like the Kansas City Royals. Um, so How in did 2017, I know you were going to mention them? <laughs> like you said, <laughs> contrasting. Yeah, I, I just think yeah. it's 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 interesting because the Royals. If you guys have looked at our midseason. Um, organization update they are near the bottom and i think a lot of royals fans if you looked at the route the big league team was taking over the last six or seven years in terms of just wins on the field where they're finishing the division they finished in third place in 2017 with 80 wins since then 2018 58 games they won 2019 they won 59 shortened season in 2020 they won 26 finished fourth in division 2021 they won 74 games finished fourth in division Last year, 2022, they, fin- they finished fifth and they won 65 games. So it's in terms of bottoming out and being a bad club at the big league level and also picking at the top of the first round, in 2018, I think we can include that year, they weren't picking in the top half of the first round, but they also had the 18th pick, the 33rd, the 34th, and the 40th. They had a lot of ammunition. And I remember at the time, just their bonus pool and the picks they had made them one of the most interesting clubs in that draft year. And they also got Brady Singer at 18. They paid him over slot at that pick. Uh, We viewed him as a top 10 talent. There's a chance he could have gone in that top 10 range. But their picks, compared to the Orioles' picks, just haven't looked quite as good. In 2018, they took Singer at 18. They took Jackson Coar, 33, Daniel Lynch, 34, and Chris Bubich, uh, number 40. So that's kind of their big grouping. Then in 2019... They picked second overall, Bobby Wood Jr. No complaints there. You like, you like him. I like him. I like him a little bit. 2020, picking fourth, they took Ace to Lacey, and then they took Nick Lofton with a 32nd overall pick. In 2021, they took Frank Mazzucato. Again, kind of a surprise pick. 
off the board a little bit. The Orioles have done similarly. I think Frank Mazzucato is still a solid prospect, but he's he's not ranked top 50 on our top 100 like Heston Kerstad is. Gavin Cross in 2022 at pick number nine, and now they just took Blake Mitchell, who was one of the biggest underslot deals in the class in 2023. So a similar sort of taking your guy up top, cutting a deal, spreading money around as as the Mazzucato move. But like, I think it could be overly simple to just say, oh, the Orioles picked up top, therefore they had good talent, therefore they're going to be good now. It's not, it's not a guarantee in baseball's draft that just because you're picking high, you're going to wind up with good players. It, the hit rate is still low. You still have to identify these guys accurately, and you still have to then develop them. So it's... It, it can be easy to say, oh, we've got top 10 picks for a few years in a row. We're going to have a great farm system. But clearly, that's not the case for the Royals. We have them right now as one of the worst farm systems in baseball. So where exactly is the difference between what the Royals are doing and what the Orioles are doing? I mean, is it as simple as, like, it is fortunate to luck into the 1-1 pick when you have Adley Rutschman at the top of the class. And, and maybe there is a difference in picking within the top five versus the back of the top 10. Like, well, every we'll look at given the, ti- year, the, t- like the Tigers had two, the Tigers had two number one overall picks in three years and, uh, and they picked top five, three years in a row or no, four years. They got Casey Mize, number one overall in 2018, mm-hmm. Riley Green, fifth in 19, Spencer Torkelson was one, one in 2020 yeah, and then twenty one, mm-hmm. they took Jackson, Jackson Job. So, what four years in a row picking top five overall and two number one overall picks, and uh, you know it's not like their big league team is humming along <laughs> at mm-hmm. the moment. So, um, you know, I think their farm system is in a better place than the Royals. But to your point, it's just because you are picking first overall or consistently mm-hmm. picking in the top five, 10 picks. It certainly is an advantage and tanking works, but it's also not, you have to be able to identify and develop and, and do other things in addition to building through the farm system as well. But uh, there's more to it than just having those high picks. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of cool to see that we have really three teams that have been picking super high up in the draft for the last half decade, really. And we've got one team that's the, the top farm system in baseball, one team in the Tigers. It's kind of middle of the pack. Uh, we have them 16 on our rankings. And then the Royals, we have them at number 29. And I think in our conversations about this, this list, at least, it, it seemed like there was at least a case that you could put them 30. Although I think some players at the top end of their list is more exciting. Although for the Angels, the the bottom team, the list, they do have Nolan Shanwell, big leaguer, only a month after he was drafted. So maybe you maybe you might like the top of their list better now. I don't know. Is that what you're thinking coming into the year that by <laughs> August he'd be hitting uh, in in a major league lineup? No, I can't say that I thought that at all. And if it was going to be a college player, I think there would have been maybe at least ten other ones that I would have given you before Shanwell. Although. I do think it's interesting to talk through this this Nolan Shanwell situation and the Angels in general, what they've been doing with the draft. Because um, we talked about all these teams tanking. The Angels certainly haven't been tanking. They've been trying to compete unsuccessfully for, for a number of years with Mike Trout and Shohei Otani on the team. And they've really taken such an aggressive 
strategy and player development, presumably because they're just trying to get that team to the playoffs and, and make the most of of those big league guys while they still have them. Otani, obviously a free agent. Trout entering his decline years. And they've really been to the playoffs, what, one one year with Mike Trout? Is that is that right? And then uh, yeah. <laughs> if you look at the last three years, I was looking at, at this earlier today. Um, in 2021, there are... Uh, yeah, wow, it's sorry, 2014. I'm... That was nine years ago. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's it's insane <laughs> <laughs> to think about. But in, in 2021, the Angels took Sam Bachman in the first round with the ninth overall pick. I believe he was the first player in that draft class to make the majors. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong or if, or if listeners... I'm pretty positive, though, he was the first to make the majors out of that draft class. From the 2022 draft class, there are four players who have made the majors. Three of those players are Angels prospects. Zach Neto, who was their first rounder, taken 13 overall. Ben Joyce, obviously the famous hard-throwing Tennessee reliever, was a third rounder who's who's made the majors already. And then Victor Medeiros, a sixth rounder out of Oklahoma State. He was also taken uh, by the Angels and made the majors. The only other player from the 2022 draft so far who's, who's a big leaguer is Wade Meckler, who the Giants selected. Then in 2023, we don't officially have any player right now, but uh, assuming given the news, Nolan Shanuel has been called up, he's, he's going to very quickly become the first player in the 2023 draft. And you basically have to go back to the 70s or 80s to find a time when players took hitters and moved them this aggressively. I mean, it's basically a bunch of players from the 70s and 80s plus Ryan Zimmerman in 2005. If you're looking at just drafted and reached the majors. JJ to put go together. From, you're talking about in the same year? Just just after being drafted, the quickest that you got to the majors, yeah, same year. I think Shanuel, the, the information I'm looking at that JJ pulled is like the fifth quickest. It's Dave Roberts, Bob Horner, Dave Winfield, Brian Milner, all players selected in the 70s, and then Nolan Shenwell. <laughs> then you've got Rick Sarone, also drafted in the 70s, and Ryan Zimmerman, 2005. So it's just very rare to see players push this aggressively. And if you look at quickest to the big leagues after being drafted, the Angels now have two of the top 20 fastest with Shenwell and Zach Neto. And I think there are only like four other players this century who have who have been selected as hitters and made the majors in their draft year. It's crazy. It and I'm curious like is this too aggressive? Do you think do you think there's a reason clearly there's a reason players don't move this quickly, but do you think there is something to the Angels pushing players quicker given how many young players in the game are are impacting the game at such a high level? I mean, if, if both Neto and Shanuel prove productive big leaguers, do you think more teams will follow this? Or do you think it's it's mostly an artificial situation that's just based on the Angels like desperately trying to make the playoffs? I, I think there's some of that. I think if it does work, you will have owners asking questions to their own GMs or, or president of baseball operations of why aren't we moving our guys faster. Why are, why do we have our first round pick out of college in low a right now? You know, at, at the same time, the Rangers pushed Jack lighter to double a 
and he's still well he's not even there now but like he hasn't he, he hasn't progressed past there so i don't mm-hmm. i mean him going to the big leagues certainly is different but <laughs> moving it's like it's i've never experienced this in my life literally the first time i've ever experienced this that's how unprecedented it is for like, i wasn't hitter, following prospects guess, yeah. when joe mount yeah for a hitter no never yeah I mean, I think that's kind of crazy. <laughs> we had heard leading up to the draft that the Angels really wanted a fast-moving college player. And when they initially picked Shanuel, I was like, oh, okay, they think he's going to be a fast-moving guy, probably on an underslot deal. We had him ranked number 30 overall. Really good batted ball data, good contact, great chase rates, solid exit velocity. All the, all the metrics we had, he graded out really well. But I was like, okay, it's a first base only profile. It's a smaller conference. There are a number of other hitters that, based on my conversations with scouts and all of the feedback we've gotten, like probably like those hitters better overall. Then Shanuel signs for slot. He plays 21 total games between three games in rookie ball, two games in low A, and 16 games in double A. And to his credit, he walked 21 times. He struck out 10 times, still showing the, the great strikeout to walk ratios that he always had at Florida Atlantic hit 370 510 493 homered once doubled four times I mean solid numbers in a small sample and all of a sudden he's on the big league roster it's kind of crazy I don't know I'm curious if he succeeds if we'll have to start kind of rethinking how we evaluate these small school or small conference hitters because it'll be back-to-back years where the Angels have popped one of these guys like a Neto and like a Shanuel where there is some pushback from the industry on the data because they're not playing in the SEC. It's like, oh, what would Shanuel's batted ball data look like if you had three years in the SEC like Dylan Cruz? Like, we can be a little skeptical of it. I think it's right to be skeptical of it. The competition's not as good. The fastball velocities that he was facing on average were lower. He's not seeing as much 93+. plus. So there are still a lot of question marks you could have, but <laughs> as long as he doesn't fall on his face in the big leagues, it's going to look pretty good for the Angels taking these two small small school guys. And I, I think there's certainly a chance that he does fall on his face. We've, we've really not seen this a lot. For Yeah, I mean, for other teams, I think part of the calculation, too, is they don't want to start the player's service clock before mm-hmm. they have to. They don't want to start it when the player's 21 years old for you know for a college player they'd probably rather wait and get an extra season of control although i guess at what at this point at this point at, at least this point now we're yeah. he'll be rookie eligible still next year and he will still be eligible for the prospect promotion incentive so if he is top three in rookie of the year he'll he'll get a uh he'll get the team an extra pick so i'm not sure right. if that means that his clock hasn't started or or if that depends on playing time the rest of the year or what but I know for sure he could still be eligible for, for a PPI pick. Yeah, I think probably for the awards. Angels, it's less the service time. It's not as much of a consideration when they might, you know, <laughs> either the owner might ultimately just sell the team or the front office mm-hmm. may be feeling pressure to win or be yeah. uh, possibly employed somewhere else uh, pretty <laughs> soon, given the lack of playoff appearances that we mentioned uh, over the last decade. Um, but it's, I, I do think there's a case to move some of these, you know, especially these college draft picks more aggressively and not just think of, Oh, like, will he 
these guys have only played in college, so the next step should be low A, or the next step should be high A. I mean, Dylan Cruz is the same high school class as Pete Crow Armstrong. They were, mm-hmm. and I, I love Pete Crow Armstrong, but I, I don't know that he's, when we have Dylan Cruz rated as a better prospect than PCA, I, I don't know that PCA is a more advanced hitter necessarily right now than Dylan Cruz. Um, so, but Dylan Cruz is in, they're the same age. Dylan Cruz is in low A, PCA is in triple A. And obviously like it's a little bit more complicated than just sending a guy to a certain level. Like there's other players who you have to, you know, get playing time for and mm-hmm. move around. And I think too, but what, what's really important too is a, a lot of this, it almost seems like more of this is not necessarily what's, what's the best, most ideal timeline for the player, but what's the timeline in the competitive window of the team? Because whereas the Angels, it seems like everything is pointed to them trying to win as much as possible now. For the Nationals, they don't want Dylan Cruz up now. They're, they're not competitive now. They don't want to start that service time clock for him. They've got a wave of prospects that are coming up, and there's probably no feeling of, of needing to rush him at all. So, I mean, what do you really... What's what's the benefit of Dylan Cruz getting up to double A from the team's perspective if you are not ready to compete at all? If you feel like you're just going to lose years of of Cruz when you're not ready to win, there's every incentive to, to push him slower, right? To to kind of slow play his progression through the minor leagues. Yeah, I mean, what are they what are they looking to win this year? What are they looking to win next year? I mean, they're kind of in that rebuild mode where you're trying to just collect as much talent as possible and hope your next wave is competitive. They're like a few years behind Baltimore in this stage, I would imagine. So, I mean, I I think Dylan Cruz is, what I'm saying is I think Dylan Cruz right now would be more ready to handle big league pitching than Nolan Shanuel right now. The only reason that one is, is pushed is because of team circumstance. Right. If you're saying if the Angels somehow had Dylan Cruz, he'd be up there right now instead of <laughs> Shanwell. Yeah, if the Angels said, we're going to give you our entire bonus pool if you get to 11 and all the teams in front of us just happen to go along with this for some dumb reason, yeah, Dylan Cruz would be up there now. <laughs> or Wyatt Langford. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think... As much as I think that Nolan Shanwell's bad at ball data is, is great, I think there's probably already this narrative going around that he's the most like big league ready hitter. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think he just landed in a spot where the team was ready to push a player aggressively. It's what a, about it's the Rangers, risk. the Rangers with Wyatt Langford. You think Langford is more a, ready? I think he is more likely to debut before Dylan Cruz specifically because of the team he was drafted by, even though again, I think it's much closer, but I think Cruz is the more polished hitter compared to Langford. I, I would be surprised, I would say, if if Langford debuted after Cruz, just given the state of those two organizations. Right. But it, like for so he could be somebody who I mean, again, my point is I, I think both of these guys, you could send them to double A tomorrow. And obviously mm-hmm. you're saying there's, you know, you, you have to make sure there's playing time for other prospects in the organization and the you know, the Nationals have James Wood at double a too. I mean, there's, you know, there's room in that outfield, I think still to move all those guys around, yeah. or you could send, I Dylan would think Cruz, you could send Dylan Cruz to triple a right now. And I, I think he'd be, 
fine if not I, I probably better than fine if you wanted to send him there mm-hmm. tomorrow yeah and i would think too when you're talking about guys like dylan cruz and james wood like you're probably assigning them in their ideal scenarios and you're moving around all your other outfield prospects based on them it's not like oh dylan cruz can't move up to double a because we've got this this other guy who it's his time for double a like i imagine dylan cruz's development is being prioritized here yeah at at the same time even having said all that as far as a player's development i don't know that what level you play at ultimately is going to matter all that much in the long run like i certainly each level you move up is going to be more challenging than the last and there are some bigger jumps from one level to another than you know the the you know the jump from rookie ball to low a i think is um a big one or or the jump to to double a is a big one more so than going from just double a to triple a but i don't know i i I think we've seen the the level you're at is is not going to make that much of an impact on your long-term development whether you're in you know you spend more time in low a or high a or you're you know facing more more advanced competition at at the upper levels Mm -hmm. yeah i'm curious what the most comparable competition to the sec is with the minor league ladder at this stage we always hear about the japanese league being somewhere in between triple a and the majors i'm curious what what the sec competition would be compared to like a low a or a rookie ball yeah, well, I mean, and uh, you know, part of the reason I say that too is looking at the development of players in Japan or in Cuba, like you know, Jose Abreu or Yoani Cespedes or Yulieski Gurriel, all these players who came up playing in Cuba, like they don't really have a minor league system there. Right. I mean, they have their, their junior leagues, their 18 and under, 16, 15 under leagues. Uh, there is a 23 and under league there, too. But, like, for the most part, you're, you're going to Serie Nacional and you're just playing or sitting on the bench. But, like, you know, you're, you're there right away. These guys still develop, even though they didn't have low A, high A, double A, triple A. Somehow, somehow they managed to develop and get better without having this multi-layered, multi-level system of uh, minor league baseball to go through. So I, I think it's, it's good. We have all these different levels of the minor leagues, but I think the importance of like, Oh, he's in, we're going to send this guy to double a versus high a is, uh, ultimately not that big of a factor in in their long-term development so you're saying when i get really excited about a a player who's five years younger than the average at double a is performing well i shouldn't be that excited about it is that what you're saying ben that would be one misinterpretation you could make yes (laughs) so what are what are our expectations for shanuel do we have any is it just something we're kind of going to watch and see how it unfolds and, and be fans about it like what do you expect him to do because I mean, I, I mentioned month, this I in a, no idea. <laughs> I mentioned this on a, a recent podcast with Peter. We were talking just draft stuff in general, and I wonder 
if you had to pick a, a skill that translates translates most easily to the big leagues, do you think it is approach and pitch recognition, just like overall swing decisions? Because that seems to be one of Shaniwell's strongest traits. Like he does make a lot of contact. He did hit the ball hard in college. I think he's probably hit over power in general and particularly with wood bat and given his just mechanics swing wise setup. Like, do you think it's easier for a player who has great pitch recognition to make a quick transition to the big leagues or, or to make that learning curve a little bit less steep because at the same time, like we've seen Ellie De La Cruz where that's, that's the exact opposite. Like he's just this massive toolsy freak who will expand the zone, will chase, will swing and miss. But I mean, he, he made mincemeat of, of the big leagues for about a month and a half. So do you think there's one skill that translates more easily, I guess, or do you think it's just, it, it just is player dependent and there's no one trait that makes it any easier than, than another. Yeah. Well, I mean, and even with Ellie De La Cruz for as exciting and talented as I think he is, um, you know, I, I think we've seen it come back down to, to earth with him. Um, I, like, I, th- I think if we're talking about expectations for the rest of the season in a month or a month and change, I, I think anything can happen. I mean, if you're a big power guy who will chase and expand the zone, yeah, you can have a hot month and it's going to look great. Um I think if you're talking a little bit more of a moderate term uh, or a medium term, Alex, a over the next year, if he makes the big league team out of spring training next year and stays up for a year, I do think that the approach is a significant factor. And that's something that he has in his advantage. I, I think if you're, somebody who chases a lot outside the strike zone. If your swing has more holes in it, it's more likely that major league pitchers and all of the people who they have behind them, as far as being able to prepare a game plan, a plan of attack to exploit those weaknesses and those holes in your game that you have. I I think there's a greater chance that, uh, you know, those types of players will struggle when they get up, even, even if they've had success up through AAA or, um, you know, we've, we've certainly seen that plenty of times. Whereas if you, you know, you have a good approach, you, you stay within the strike zone, you have the kind of back control that Shanwell has, uh, I think it's more likely and, and more conducive to having a, uh, an easier transition to, mm. to the big leagues. Yeah. One thing that I'm really interested in with Shanuel as he as he faces big league pitching is is how he handles velocity at the top of the zone. I spoken a little bit earlier about how like the velocity in his conference wasn't quite as as hard as the SEC or other Power Five conferences. Uh, but in the sample of 93 plus velocity that he's faced in college, overall his numbers are really quite strong. It's a 1,200 ops uh, against that velocity overall. But if you look at different parts of the zone versus 93+, plus, it's a little bit of a different story against upper third fastballs. His ops is just 666 compared to middle third, 1,060, and lower third, 1,600. Again, like once you start getting this granular, the sample sizes get a lot smaller, and maybe it's hard to have any like black and white takeaways. But 
I do think it's interesting that just his high hand setup and the way his swing works, the fact that he's not going to have seen nearly as much quality velocity uh, in the past as he's about to face, the fact that the numbers look like they do now. I am curious if he's able to get to that that kind of elite velocity at the top of the zone. And given what major league pitchers have found a ton of success with over the last few years, just attacking vertically, high carry fastballs at the top of the zone. And now not only more fastballs, but you're also going to have to balance that out with knowing that all these pitchers also have really good secondaries. So you can't just go up there guessing fastballs and expecting to, to cheat to that pitch. So that's maybe the most interesting part of Shanwell's profile that I'm, I'm curious to see how effectively pitchers attack him. Cause I, I'm almost surprised at how many young players come up and just succeed early on. It always seems like they, they come up, they succeed, the pitchers adjust. Like, I think this would be something that, you know, right away, you attack him right away. Um, but we'll see. I'm, I'm curious to see how he handles that in general, if there are any swing tweaks that he'll need to make because of that. Cause again, it's, it's one of the funkiest setups in the 2023 draft class. And one of the funkier setups I've seen overall, but at least in college, he did a pretty nice job getting on time, getting his hands into a good launch position. Um, and like I said, the overall the overall velocity track record he has is is quite solid. I mean, it sounds like uh, Kevin Euclid, mid major, ton of walks, funky, funky mm-hmm. swing. Obviously, you know, different size, different you know, hitting from different sides of the plate. But um, mm. just as far as a unorthodox swing or an unorthodox setup, but just outstanding plate discipline and mm-hmm. really good back control that comes with it. Yeah. The other thing too, is I'm, I'm curious what sort of power hitter he turns into. I think even going back to high school, he was always known as a really advanced pure hitter. He's a hitter first, but he's very big and physical and he has raw power. Like if some of these, if major league pitching erodes, some of these, the contact skills that he has, like, will he be able to transition into more of like a power over hit? batter as a as a first base type like i'm curious how that will evolve over the years as he adds more strength um maybe he's just a guy that will never hit for a ton of power but i do think there's a chance for those those tools to maybe be flipped depending on how he he's able to handle big league pitching but it's it's super fascinating it's it's crazy to talk about a draftee facing big league pitching this early and whatever you think of the strategy i think it's going to be fun to to watch it unfold and to see it happen yeah. Did uh, I don't know? Was there anybody who jumped out to you from the after the Orioles in our farm system rankings as far as a team that's really impressed you in the way they've been able to build their system? Uh, yeah, I think mine is probably a pretty boring answer though because it's the Dodgers, and I feel like they're constantly ranked high despite the fact that they are always picking at the back of the first round didn't even have a real first round pick this year after it got dropped 10 spots i mean we have them number three overall their just minor league system in general seems to be one of the most successful in in all of baseball just in terms of wins and losses Um, some of the minor league data that we have from this system especially the hitters is really impressive i think earlier this spring Kyle had looked into their double-A pitching staff, just how electric that group of arms was. I mean, you've still got 
top 100 prospects like Emmett Sheehan, Dalton Rushing, Gavin Stone. I mean, Michael Bush is a big leaguer for probably, I don't know, 27 other teams at this point. I mean, he's one of the oldest players on the list. If he was on any number of other teams, he'd probably be a big league regular right now. Um, and just the depth beyond the top 100, it, they're truly in just an unpro- not not impressed. They're, they're an unbelievable talent production factory in Los Angeles, and they don't need to pick high to do that. They, they just do everything so well. So just the fact that they're consistently there and they're third is impressive to me. And then the other team... I don't know if it's it's as impressive as the same way as the Dodgers is, but I was surprised to see where they ranked. Not that I disagree. I just didn't I didn't realize how many good players this team still had in their system, particularly at the very top, is the Padres. I mean, a year after you trade for Juan Soto and send away a, a massive prospect haul to do it, you're still in the upper third of our farm system rankings. You've got Ethan Salas, who is maybe the best catching prospect at this age that, that I've seen, like obviously we had Adley Rushman who was, who's pretty unbelievable, but just the level that Salas is at now at his age is, is, is remarkable. Jackson Merrill. I mean, I love Dylan Lesko. Robbie Snelling has been great. Um, the depth is not quite as impressive as the Dodgers beyond that. Uh, but I think it's, it's impressive to me that the Padres are still here given how many prospects over the last three years that they've just consistently shipped out. Um, I would expect them to be in the 20 to 30 range just based on the trades they've made, but they're not. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, a a big part of that is signing Ethan Salas, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. Ethan Salas could be, I mean, he could be the number one prospect in baseball next year. Would not surprise me at all. I mean, I could Jackson holiday will probably be in the big leagues and Dylan Cruz will hopefully have graduated joining him as well. Just what he's doing as a 17 year old catcher right now is phenomenal. Obviously the depth hurts when you've traded away so many players. I mean, they could have three, I mean, you could have Salas, you could have James Wood, uh, in your just two homegrown top 10 prospects, if they had kept him, like Jackson Merrill is not too far off. Uh, mm-hmm. Robert Gasser, they traded away. Yep. Owen Casey, they traded away. Like, they would have a lot oh more. My God. I forgot it. they traded Owen Casey. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, oh, my uh, gosh. Yeah. And then, like, you know, like Sammy Zavala, I think, should be and, and will be, and it already is in the top 100 conversation. Um, I, I, I like Dylan Head quite a bit i mean i I like just about everybody's first round pick from this past year's (laughs) drafts is just a really strong uh draft um i think more so than than usual but but yeah i'm with you or it's like man the the padres are are really here after all the players they Mm -hmm. trade away but i mean you have two two potential high impact players in salas and Merrill and then some pretty good players behind them. Obviously, after about 10 or so, it falls off pretty hard, which is why they're not higher up the list. But yeah, I think they're impressive. To me, the the team that jumps out uh, the most for a lot of the reasons you said about the Dodgers is the Brewers. Um, Mm, I think the the Brewers, to me, the Orioles are the clear number one. And then I, I think the Brewers are 
there's another tier between like the brewers and everyone else Mm -hmm. below them where you have you have the number two prospect in baseball in jackson Churio. uh you have i think it's six top 100 prospects um and that's after graduating joey weimer after graduating bryce tarang who you know you know hasn't set it on fire by any means in the big leagues but um they they still have a they have a potential franchise cornerstone in Churio. They have a whole bunch of other talent behind him, or, or I mean, depending on where you want to call Sal Frelick ahead or behind, he's behind mm-hmm. on the prospect list, but um, ahead of him in the big leagues. And, and it's a mix of guys too who are at the upper levels, and guys like obviously Frelick, but then Jefferson Kiro, who I mean, he's ranked in our top 40 prospects, but I feel like he doesn't get enough attention still doing what he's doing as a 20-year-old catcher, both offensively and defensively in the Southern League. Like, Robert Gasser should be up at some point in, I mean, maybe this year, but certainly next year. Mm-hmm. Tyler Black's in AAA. Jacob Mizierowski is, like, the ultimate wild card. I think he is second in the minors in hit by pitches despite his uh, limited innings. And he also has arguably maybe just the best raw stuff in, mm. in the minor leagues. So he could end up being a front of the rotation starter. Uh, he could end up being a very uh, wild and erratic reliever. There's a huge gap between those two things, obviously, but um, one of the better pitching prospects in baseball. And then you layer on what I think was a pretty strong draft this past year with some pretty good early returns with guys like Brock Wilkin and mm. Eric Batante and Bovey and, and, you know, Josh Noth still hasn't taken the mound yet. And Cooper Pratt has looked pretty good so yeah. far. So, I was about to um, mention those draftees because Mike Bove has been one of the better performers in this class so far in pro ball. Again, with all these guys, it's, it's reasonably small samples, but he has 61 ABs. He's hit close to 400 or 66 OBP. Uh, five home runs, three doubles. Brock Wilkin has been good. Um, Send him to double spe- A. Yes, but I mean specifically the walk to strikeout rate for him, which I think is is fairly key because he he didn't hit over three hundred his first two years, and then during his draft year, the big change was significantly better walk rate, cut the strikeout rates. Um, if he's able to show on base ability and the sort of raw power that he has, I think it's like seventy raw power. That's going to look really good. Uh, you mentioned Batanti. He's been solid so far. Um, again, with just OBP and power, I like Cooper Pratt quite a bit as well in the sixth round. So, and, Yo, and Ferry you, you duck- Rodriguez is a mm. center fielder, one of the better DSL prospects, who's uh, you know would be a 2024 high school player if he was mm. coming up in the states. So, um, you know, like their their 21 to 30 is pretty ordinary. I think, but especially their top 10, top 20, and obviously the number one guy is a a potential superstar too. And they're Mm -hmm. doing this again, kind of like the Dodgers where, I mean, they haven't picked quite as late as the Dodgers, but they also haven't picked with a top 15 pick. um, Yeah, their top pick. Other than Sal Frelick in the last six years. Yeah, and since 2018 self relic is the highest at 15 otherwise they've they've pretty much been in that back third of the first round in 2017 and 2016 they picked top 10 but they took keston hira and Corey ray like 
number of other picks look better than both of those at this point beyond that. So they've done a good job. And I think, too, it's for a few years, they they seem to benefit from players that we had ranked higher sliding to them. And I'm specifically looking at Terang and Garrett Mitchell. Like we had Garrett Mitchell ranked as the number six overall player in 2020. He was certainly one of those polarizing profiles given the tool set, ground ball rate, injury history, et cetera. Bryce Terang, I think um, we also had ranked higher. Uh, but even if you get lucky from our point of view with, with high ranked players sliding to you, like the fact that you've been picking in the back half of the first round and, and in your first round looks as good as it does six years later is, is a testament to what you've been doing. Well, and it's beyond that too, or, I mean, Jacob Mizorowski, Tyler Black, mm. uh, you know, not first round picks, uh, it's mm. trades, Robert Gasser, it's international signings, especially mm. in Venezuela with Churio, Jefferson Kiro, uh, and, and the Dominican Republic too. I mean, you've got Yoferi Rodriguez coming up, uh, mm. Abner Uribe now pitching in the big leagues, uh, Luis Lara, another Venezuelan signing in their, top 10 is in high a right now as an 18 year old uh, kind of I'm, smaller dude but i'm pretty i'm curious pretty i'm curious what you have on on dylan array too because he was he was a guy who was pretty under the radar at least from my perspective in the 2022 draft third round pick i think he was one of the first players who was taken who we didn't have on our ba 500 but he's a smaller guy he's had a pretty phenomenal year just looking at the stats 349 503 388 so i guess not really much going on in the power department with 31 steals is he on the 30 at this point or what, what do you have on him oh yeah you know he's definitely he's definitely in their top 30 it's pretty much the exact skill set you would think just from looking mm-hmm. at his stat line <laughs> yeah. of you know a 19 year old who you know they needed to keep back a 2022 high school pick who they needed to keep back in rookie ball for most of the year up until now because it's it is a very uh, disciplined approach, very good strike zone judgment, makes a lot of contact, but he's he's very small. There's very minimal power. Um, mm. more, and he's been playing more second base anyway than shortstop this year. Probably his, his long-term home is at second base, so he's, he's going to have to show that he's got more than, um, you know, that 20 power that he has of right the, now. Which... Of the 2022 draft class, I believe, at least in, in 2023 specifically, he has the third best on base percentage of anyone in that draft class, which is kind of cool. Granted, yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of players who are, who are in the lower levels who are doing that. But he, he's, in, he's in rookie ball, too, as a <laughs> 2022 high school player. But he's, hey, I you mean, said look, these he's, levels don't matter, Ben. Come on. That's another great misinterpretation <laughs> of what I'm... <laughs> what I'm saying, but all right. But well, the I'm going to head, headline this podcast. Ben Badler, the levels don't matter or something like that. <laughs> the, but the, I mean, the other guy from that draft class too is Luke Adams, who, I mean, he was a 12th round pick out of a Illinois high school. I mean, you watch his swing and you're like, what, what is, what is he doing? But he doesn't swing and miss a ton he draws a lot of walks and he hits the ball really hard now he's at third base now might end up in left field first base and think that's i would say the more than likely outcome is he ends up at one of those positions long term and then there's some you know significant questions about how 
that swing plays against higher level pitching, but like, you know, for a 12th round pick and it wasn't like it was a 12th round pick and they gave him $2 million either. Like it was just, you know, just a really good pick so far. Mm. Um, See how it goes. But again, that's another one. That's a pretty good use of a a pick with uh, double digits behind it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, what stands out with these two teams at the top is they have really impressive depth throughout their farm system, and it's it's capped off with just an elite prospect at the top of the list. I mean, you could argue Jackson Holiday or Jackson Chorio number one in baseball for either of these systems, but I don't think that, to your point about Baltimore being the clear one and Milwaukee being the clear two in kind of their own tiers, there aren't any other systems that really come close when you think of the combination of like quality depth throughout and impact talent at the very top and, and beyond just Chorio and just holiday other guys who are top 30 ish prospects and, and potential everyday impact players like Colton Kowser's of the world and the South relics of the world um, really just separates these two in, in my mind as well. Um, yeah. any, any other systems that, that stand out to you either positively or negatively? We've talked a lot about, about the good ones to this point, but are, are there any other systems that are, are worth noting here? I, I think, think trying one that I'm... to, yeah, okay. go ahead. No, no, you're good. Well, I was going to say, I think trying to value the national system is an interesting I one. I was just about to bring up the nationals. They have two top 10 prospects in Dylan Cruz and James Wood. They have another top 100 guy in Brady house. They have some other pretty good prospects i think behind them too but the depth is not near the level of the some of the teams ahead of them or um or or you know the volume of of top 100 prospects but at the same time like i don't know i i think you could argue them as high as maybe maybe five like anywhere from like five to nine even even 10 mm-hmm. i mean the rangers have two top 10 prospects right now and at wyatt langford and, and evan carter maybe carter's a little bit more of a split camp guy if if you can say that for a, a top 10 prospect in baseball just based on what you think of his future power output but um i don't like i i think any of those teams like there's not a big gap or it's at least arguable if you want to shuffle those teams into a different order based on the, based on how you value the, the players or the farm system weighting as a whole. Yeah. The nationals are, are interesting to me because we just talked about the Padres and how they were surprisingly good. I feel like the nationals are almost surprisingly bad. And and part of this is because some of the graduations they had, players who who are young on their team and and theoretically will still be part of their like next wave of competitive talent, like CJ Abrams, Mackenzie Gore, players like that who who aren't counting towards these rankings at all. But it is surprising to see them ranked behind the Padres after they just sold Juan Soto to the Padres for a massive collection of players, after they've been drafting very high in the draft for the last couple years. They also, again, if you go back, some of their first-round picks don't look quite good. This is going back a little bit further. 2016, they took Carter Keboom. 2017, they took Seth Romero. 
2018, they took Mason Denneberg. 2019, they took Jackson Rutledge. 2020, they took Cade Cavalli. So it's a lot of pitchers they took that really didn't pan out, have dealt with injuries, have dealt with off-the-field issues. And then you have the recent run of first-rounders. And again, this is also with them picking higher in the draft. They take Brady House at 11 overall in 2021. They take Elijah Green fifth overall last year. And then with the second pick, obviously, this past year, they took Dylan Cruz. So just given their prospect capital or their draft capital over the last few years, given the trades they've made, it's surprising to not see them. Like, I feel like they should be a top five farm system right now, given some of those moves and where they've been picking and and the competitive state of the big league team but they're not. So hopefully the the last few drafts will help them kind of reinforce some of that depth. But I mean, are there any international players of note? Because I, I do think too, a key separator for some of these, the really good teams from the bad ones is you, you have to be active. Not only do you have to draft well, you have to be active on the international market and supplement your entire farm with players from, from that source as well. And I'm, I'll admit, like, I don't know the national system to the level that you probably do on the international side, but I can't think of any off the top of my head that really get me excited. Uh, I mean, Christian Vaccaro, I like him in Mm. the Florida complex league at the same time, you know, of their top 15 prospects, it's him and Jeremy De La Rosa are the two Mm. homegrown international players. I mean, they traded for Harley and Susanna in that uh, deal with the Padres, but yeah, like you were saying, yeah, a part of it is, look, you, you trade and you're prioritizing or I don't know, prioritizing, but part of that trade for Juan Soto because Juan Soto is a, a you know, potential Hall of Fame player you're trading for. You have to give up a lot to get him. So they're getting, like you said, C.J. Abrams, Mackenzie Gore, guys who are not factoring into a farm system ranking. But, you know, you get Susanna, you get Robert Hassel, who I, you know, I, I really liked. Robert Hassel coming into the year, but the, I mean, the reality is this year he's hitting 222, 328, 335. Um, you know, he's dealt with injuries. Hopefully that's, you know, part of it and he can come back healthy next year and everything is, uh, you know, snaps back, but the, the strikeouts are up this year and he's always been, you know, the, the calling card with him has always been his ability to, uh, barrel the ball pretty consistently and that's just hasn't been the case this year so um mm-hmm. but at the same time again i like anywhere from like five to nine i think you can make a case for the nationals to be higher just because dylan cruz himself is so valuable james mm-hmm. james wood is another again if you're a top 10 prospect these guys have so much value i mean if i'm trying to think of another club for example like if you know the, like the Padres if the Padres came and said like hey we'll give you you know Dylan Lesko and Robbie Snelling and Jairo Iriarte are, are you know three of our top 100 prospects and uh, you give us Dylan Cruz the Nationals are going to be like no that's not mm-hmm. like we're going to have we're going to keep Dylan Cruz Dylan Cruz yeah. could be uh, you know this this point is also really interesting with the Nationals, too, because I feel like in the past like decade or so, the Nationals really had a very stars and scrubs approach at the big league level. They have a massively top-heavy system right now. And they also, I feel like, had one of the most top-heavy drafts of any team in the 2023 class. 
they were extremely aggressive on college seniors very early on. Their first three picks were all over slot deals. Dylan Cruz, number two, they gave him just a grand and a half over slot at that pick. They gave Johanny Morales basically $500,000, $450,000 over slot in the second round. And then they took Travis Sikora, who was like a fringe first round, supplemental first, early second type talent. In the third, they paid him a million and a half over slot there uh, in the third round with the 71st pick. Beyond that, the Nationals took massive underslot deals to pay for those players. So it's not actually, but you could almost view this class as sort of a three-player draft, just given some of the money that they handed out. Only three players got more than a million dollars. Andrew Pinckney in the fourth round got 500000 Outside of that, everyone is 350 or less. And even the six through 10 round range, it was all college seniors who signed for $20,000. They were the most aggressive in terms of targeting college seniors to pay for their players up top. So something about how they operate in Washington, they love taking this like almost stars and scrubs approach to things. I'm curious if you like that strategy, if you think it's too risky, because I think the point you just made at the end, like on our list, the way we do things at Baseball America, the like if you had a, if you could choose between a farm system that was really strong on depth but lacked any impact talent at the top, or if you could take a farm system that had really impressive impact talent at the top but had really bad depth, I think we would always go with the impact talent just because it's tougher to find those guys. It should be easier to fill in role players on a roster than to find a star. Like those players move the needle so much that it's more valuable. But it, it is interesting to think through just how the Nationals have operated in the past at the big league level, how their farm system looks now, and their recent draft being just super top heavy. Well, there's also then there's also what you think is depth when you just know a farm system extremely well, whether you're in that organization, like say you're the farm director or you're a fan of that team or you you know, you work for us and you cover that team's, you know, you write that team's top 30 prospect list. You're just going to know the players throughout that organization. You know, you're going to know their number 28 prospect better than you're going to know the, you know, the number 28 player in another organization. So you might think the system is deep, but then you just don't have. <laughs> They're a just deep of great... familiar names. <laughs> yeah. Whereas then there's other teams that have more. Like I think the Guardians have legitimate depth, where it's like, geez, like mm-hmm. there's guys who you know <laughs> should be in this top thirty, but like then you look at the guys ahead of them, and you're like, man, I I don't want to take him out. Like there's there's just very there's legitimate depth, and then there's oh I I just have more familiarity and knowledge. Mm of this system and not realizing oh oh we have this guy who throws you know 100 miles an hour this bullpen arm and he's he's down at 22 well yeah like but this other system has like three of those guys you just don't know yeah. who, who who they are so it my it depends. my my proxy for that because there are plenty of systems that once you get beyond the top guys i'm less familiar with them because one i'm not as focused on them and two i don't do them for the handbook chapter but my proxy for that in any given year is where are the where are the draft players that i do know falling on a top 30 list once they get added to a system and there are always a few systems where i'm like wait that guy ranks where in this system this is a really bad system if we're already getting to him and i think the angels was one that immediately jumped out to me for that like 
<laughs> just some of the players, some of the recent draftees, how high on their list they rank is like kind of scary high. And that, that kind of serves as a sort of depth proxy for me when I'm just kind of scanning through, seeing where the first rounders are going, where, where, where the second rounders, how many draftees in general are making your list. I think the Braves are maybe another one that I can speak to with a little more depth because I do them for the hand, handbook. Um, just the, the amount of, of players they drafted this year that are already on their 30 tells me that their depth is, is still not that great. Um, and I do think they're probably one of the worst teams in terms of just farm systems in general and overall depth. Uh, but yeah, it is interesting to, to kind of think through and, and just remind yourself that real depth versus perceived depth is can really trick you. Yeah. Is there, when you look at this middle group of teams from, say, 11 to 20 or so, is, is there anybody that jumps out to you, who surprised mm -hmm. you, who you think is too, too, who you'd have higher, who you'd have lower, mm -hmm. is just an intriguing team for you? Yeah, I think maybe one, and, and this probably speaks to exactly what you were saying earlier, is the Mets. And I think that I just have a lot of positive bias towards a number of players that they've drafted over recent years, like a number of their, not a number of their first rounders. I think Jet, Jet Williams is probably the biggest like personal cheeseball-esque player that's on our top 100 on their list. But they also have guys who, who aren't on the top 100 now. They have Kevin Parada, um, Colin Houck I really liked, who they just added in the 2023 draft. I like Mike Vassell in that system. So there are a lot of players that I'm personally – um, just either based on really good looks that I've had with them or, or they're just my sort of player profiles I view very favorably. And so I just have a bias towards them. I, I think they're ranked appropriately. Um, but I, I could easily see a case for if this was like a me-specific list where I would have maybe had them around 10 to 12, a few spots higher, um, maybe even even based on depth. Like I don't, I don't think I would argue them over Washington because, like you said, having Dylan Cruz and James Wood at the top of your list is – quite a bit different than having Luis Angel, Acuna, and Andrew Gilbert at the top of your list. But I do find myself yeah, liking... They don't, have a top, they don't have a top 50 prospect. Exactly. So I, I like a lot of players in this system. I like the fact that it's pretty hitter-heavy up top as well. We haven't really talked about that, but in, in a vacuum, if you have similar talent and one organization has that talent more distributed towards hitters and one has it distributed towards pitchers, I'm probably going to lean towards the hitters just because of safety risk uh, that I wouldn't really want to take on. So that's one club I like. Another another that I really like, and it's kind of a, a similar situation, is, is Minnesota. It's mostly just for the top three in this system. Uh, I really like Walker Jenkins. We've talked about this a ton on the podcast. I don't need to belabor that point, but getting him number five I thought is awesome. Brooks Lee, in addition to just being a phenomenal hitter in the 2022 class, he has performed pretty solidly. One of the one of the notable few prospects in that class that has really just kind of hit the ground running consistently and performed. Emmanuel Rodriguez has some real obvious hickeys, but I, I've always been pretty high on him. So just looking at the top of that list, seeing them at 17, seeing some other teams that I think are still in this range, most of the clubs are pretty top-heavy. Uh, I think Arizona and Detroit right in front of Minnesota there are fairly top heavy. Um, so I could see them moving up a little bit just based on my personal preference. Um, yeah, I, I think all of these, they're kind of blend together in this range a little bit more. 
Um, but those are two that I, I specifically like a lot of the players in their system, or I like a few at the top quite a bit. How about you? I think the Mariners are an intriguing one to me as a team that could jump into the top 10 a year from now. Um, we have, I mean, Harry Ford ahead of Cole Young. I, I would have Cole Young as their best prospect. I think he's, I he's think he's a top 50 prospect right now. A shortstop who uh, hit well in low A, hitting well in high A, really just just such an advanced pure hitter, um, and is uh, very patient, good control of the strike zone, very sweet left-handed swing, a lot of contact, showing a little bit of power. Not saying he's mm-hmm. going to be a you know thirty home run guy, but I think there's you know twenty plus type power in there in in some seasons. Um, and then, so I, I think he's somebody who I, I'm just higher on. Um, mm. And then look like Gabriel Gonzalez, Tyler Locklear. Uh, there's some pretty good international signings in there with Jonathan Classe. Uh, Lazaro Montes has been hitting really well this year. Obviously, has huge power. Came with a lot of strikeouts last year. Strikeout rate is down this year. Michael Arroyo, and then. Uh, you know their draft this year some some pretty good high school hitters in especially colt emerson um he's been phenomenal early on yeah for like the eight seconds he's played but you know it's hell but i you know he he has been very good in a a very small sample and uh, he i think he is a very you know kind of like cole young just a, a very advanced hitter good strike zone judgment good left-handed swing don't think he's as good of a defender as cole young but um he's a good player johnny farmello uh, really good athlete physicality i think he's gonna hit too ty pete is a, an extremely talented uh, athlete young for the class uh, some pretty mm. intriguing attributes there um so there's you know there's, there's a lot of really good players who are below double a guy a lot of guys who are not going to graduate um so you could you know point to that lack of upper level talent right now mm-hmm. in the organization as far as guys who could help uh next year and and point to that as a a weakness in the system but when you just look at the talent they have in the lower levels i view them as a team that uh, you know, arguably could be ranked higher, and I think certainly has a good chance to be ranked significantly higher once these guys kind of bubble up to the upper levels uh, in the in the next year or two. Yeah, that's a good call. And I mean, Cole Young, if you just look at like total bases compared to other players drafted in 2022, he's near the top of the list in in total bases. It's not a ton of home run power, but he's got 30 doubles this season which is pretty impressive. You could easily see those doubles, a few of them turning into home runs as he gets a little bit older, adds a little bit more physicality. But yeah, you've long been very high on Cole Young. He's consistently performed in pro ball. Like I agree with you. I'd probably have him higher on a top 100 now because he just, he keeps doing it. He doesn't have very many obvious question marks. I think in his profile, he, he does everything very well, does it smoothly, play shortstop well so that's one that you've been on for a long time ben so i was kind of expecting you to pick the mariners here just given that and and i think your points about the youth of the system the fact that you won't have a lot of graduations the fact that these players are just gonna 
get another year older, take another step forward. There's an infusion of really impressive talent from this 2023 class with all their picks in the top 30. Um, Ty Pete, I'm a little bit more skeptical on probably because, I mean, we did have him further ranked further down the board than, than where he went. Um, but there's no doubting his just athleticism and upside potential. And then on either side, um, Colt Emerson. I w- yeah, I would agree with that on Ty Pete. Yeah, Colt Emerson and, and Johnny Formello. Just I think both of those players have really well-rounded profiles, good contact ability, chance to play up the middle positions. Farmello, I think, is a, a pretty tremendous athlete, actually, just given some of the testing scores I've seen for him. And then with Colt Emerson, I just think it's a really advanced, pure hitting ability. I think there's still some projection to the body, more so than, than Cole Young. Uh, even if we think maybe Cole Young is a better defender, I think, I mean, I think you can maybe make a case that, that Colt Emerson is the best high school shortstop in the class if you wanted to. It was certainly a jumbled group in 2023, but you would not. I know I know who you would take, <laughs> but but I'm curious if, if that's another organization that you would mention here because Detroit had the Ben Badler draft. Um yeah, I mean they're 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 a very intriguing one. Um obviously Max Clark, Colt Keith, uh Jackson Job. Uh it's pleasantly surprised to hear some of the reports that we've had mm. on him this year um so he's been he's been good uh and the stuff has been good in a you know limited time he's been out there uh jace young kevin mcgonigal uh the uh, took you a long time to stuff. mention kevin mcgonigal there ben go on well i was gonna this, this i was like gonna bring it in when I'm talking about cole young because i was saying <laughs> Cole Young, getting, the mayor is getting him at t- 21 overall. I mean, look, it's a first-round pick. It's not like he was, like, <laughs> neglected or, or anything like that. But um, I thought he – The industry the doesn't like the midgets as much as you. <laughs> he had – I thought he had the talent to be, like, a, you know, go in that 10-ish overall type yeah. range. I, certainly, if you drafted it again today, he would go in the top 10. Um like, yep. like him, like Roman Anthony would be the other like big, big <laughs> mm-hmm. riser from that 2022 draft, um, especially on the high school side. But, um, you know, I, I kind of feel the same way about McGonagall. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I like those guys, you know, beyond them. Uh, like, I, I don't know. I think the system falls off pretty good and there's a fair reason they're kind of ranked as a perfectly middle of the pack system right now. Yeah. All right. How about the bottom third? Because I feel like there's a clear bottom two beyond that. Um, don't have really strong preferences, but at the, at the very back, we have the angels and the Royals. Are, are there any other teams that you think have a case for, for the worst farm system? Cause I think a year ago around this time, it was pretty obviously Atlanta. I think they were they're kind of the, the consensus bottom team. Um, now we've got in in my mind two teams that that have a case for that in Kansas City and the Angels. But I'm curious if you think it's as cut and dry as I'm laying it out here. No, I think the Astros and I think the Braves have a very good case that they could make. Not that they would make the case, but <laughs> you could make the case that they are. <laughs> they're going to come bang the table. Those the, they are thirty. They're <laughs> belonging one of those bottom two spots the biggest separator for those two for for all these teams here i think is well one i like i i still like the top two players in the brave system aj smith shaver and 
Hurston Waldrip, who I, I think was one of the better values in the draft this past year, getting him under slot in the 20s like the Braves did. I loved that pairing of, of stuff and player profile with an organization has done a great job developing players. I think you have to feel more confident that Houston and Atlanta are going to turn out some players that we're not expecting to be good than you do Kansas City and the Angels. Like how much of that factors into these rankings when we're dealing with very similar teams and, and lining them up? Like, is that a factor for you? Or are you just looking at the talent they have now um, and viewing it more more so in a vacuum? Or, or do you give teams credit and, and penalize them based on their just track record of developing players? No, I, I just view it as evaluating the players themselves. Mm. I mean, they could trade players tomorrow and they would be in a different organization, which obviously did happen in the case with the Astros with uh, Drew Gilbert and Ryan Clifford. Um, like I see them, they have no top 100 prospects. Um, they're, they're, it, it, there's not a lot in that system that really jumps out to be mm-hmm. excited about. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned the excitement of the Braves top two prospects. I, I think that's, that's fair. Um, even relative, I, I think at least, at least one of them is a top 100. <laughs> yeah. One of them is a top 100 uh, prospect. Um, it's better than the Astros top mm-hmm. two. I still think the Braves system falls off pretty quickly after after that um so i think either those teams have a a case to be a bottom a bottom two team versus the royals who you know there's there's at least more um, you know also lacking in top 100 talent but at at least uh, a wider range of players who i think are more intriguing and more likely to have major league value relative to to those other two clubs yeah i am a little surprised that blake mitchell only ranks seven in the system i i I think i'm just basically the highest person in the office on blake mitchell i mean we had him as a middle of the first round talent i think the tools are really impressive i think he's got a chance to be a good catcher he's got a cannon arm it's above average or better raw power now he had a really strong season this spring like i know people don't like high school catchers but I, I like him quite a bit. So I think I wouldn't be surprised if he moved up this list a, a decent amount. I mean, Frank Mazzucato leading your list is not the most encouraging sign, but it sounds like he's been a little bit better at times this year. Are there a few interesting players? Yeah. And the depth is the depth is what it is. I mean, am I, I? I think I'm out on an island with Blake Mitchell, though. Specifically, I definitely like him more than everyone else does. Why does everyone hate Blake Mitchell? He's a good player. He's a good prospect. He could be. He could be awesome. That sort of power and physicality as a catcher. Come on. I think he's. You know, I think he's a good prospect. It's just a matter of who else you could have taken with the eighth overall pick. <sighs> well, we have to acknowledge with that pick too. It was an underslot deal. Pretty significant underslot deal. There were just two, two underslot deals for more than a million dollars. One was Blake Mitchell at eight. One was Jacob Wilson to the A's at number six. Um, so that is certainly a factor. I mean, 
Nolan Shanuel got more money than Blake Mitchell, but I think I prefer Blake Mitchell as a prospect. And I know, especially given the news that Nolan Shanuel is a big leaguer, I imagine pretty much everyone is going to disagree with me on that one, but I'm sticking to the pre-draft rankings. I'm sticking to the tools, the positional value. I'll take this guy's chance to be an impactful catcher over Nolan Shaney Wells' really exciting nerd data at first base. So I'll, I'll be the outlier on that one. Yeah, I, I would take Shanuel on that one too. Yeah, see, everyone in the world is going to take Shanuel over Blake Mitchell, but not me. I'll, I'll stick with Blake. <laughs> well, the Royals... Uh... We're, we're with you on that one. Yeah, they were. Good job, Royals. Uh, any other teams in, on our farm system rankings you want to touch on? We've gone through a good bulk of the list. And again, as always, when we talk through our pieces here, I would encourage you guys all to to go check it out in, the, in its entirety. Um, you can get a good feel for really the entire industry. So if you are a big fan of one team and maybe you want to increase your your context, like Ben was talking about earlier, if you want to get better feel for for how your team stacks up with others, it's a good place to start. Um, and obviously, if you want to get more in depth, we've got updated top 30s. No other teams? Yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, no, like you said, uh, I mean, it was interesting seeing the the response to the Yankees where we have them ranked mm. because uh, there seems to be a lot of chatter around the Yankees, probably just given the frustrations with the major. <laughs> They're not used team. to being in last place, Ben. Major league the world team is right now. Burning. <laughs> but most of the reactions seem to be like, yeah, eleven is fair. <laughs> like that seems reasonable. Uh, yeah. It's not like I, it's not a elite farm system right now. They do have a whole bunch of guys who are top one hundred prospects, but not mm. top. 50 prospects there's some mm-hmm. a lot of pretty intriguing names in the lower levels and and some mm-hmm. of those guys who are in the top 100 are just like you know bubble top 100 guys like you could argue them in or out uh like they're not slam dunk need to be top 100 guys so they have more top 100 prospects maybe compared or they do compared to some of the teams who are ahead of him but there's just mm-hmm. not as they're, they're not quite to the level of the the you know the top 50 uh, or certainly obviously not top 25 no top 10 prospects overall in baseball in their in their system but it seems like a perfectly like solidly above average system relative to mm-hmm. the rest of the league like there's but just no one player who's your um you know your junior Caminero or Pete Crow Armstrong or um you know your Jackson Cheerio of the of the world yeah no I think it's solid they got a number of good players they they didn't have much ammunition to work with in the 2023 draft they were picking 26 overall they didn't have a second round pick they didn't have a fifth round pick they were dealing with one of the smallest bonus pools of all the teams but I really do like all their first three picks George Lombard Jr. in the first round Kyle Carr in the third round left-handed pitcher out of junior college the first Juco pitcher selected and then Rock Reggio became a personal favorite of mine during this season um, took a lot of guys to hit the ball hard. Um, no surprises there. And I think Kyle Carr specifically is is a player I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with. He's got a really good body, good athlete, um, former two-way guy. 
Um, throw strikes with decent control now. I think I think he's got a lot of potential moving forward. The Yankees have done a good job adding velocity. He's already been up to 97. So that's kind of an intriguing arm. I'm excited to see what they do with him. Um, but yeah, the Yankees do have a, a number of, of decent prospects. And it was interesting, too, when you tweeted out this list, I was surprised with how many people were commenting on it and be like, yeah, this is fair for our team. I feel like most times this is a, a list where most fans would not be happy because there's only one team that's number one and probably everyone thinks their team should be a little higher just given that that bias you were talking about earlier but we did a good job Ben. good job like you i think i just have very uh well read and eminently reasonable uh followers on twitter yeah so shout or out x, or x.com or as they x, call it these me. days yeah is it x.com or are we just calling it x i don't I even know it's just it's just X with a little scratchy mm. logo on my phone. It's distressed now. It's it's a little bit older than it was earlier, so it's a little cooler. Now you're gonna have to read all my tweets because you can't block. I can't me block you. Yeah. On Twitter. yeah. Un- unfortunately, that fe- sounds like that feature is going. So I'll have to see your stupid tweets now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's kind of all my takes on on farm system stuff. I'm curious about your summer though, about your travels. Uh, I want to talk to you about what you saw, what what events you liked this year. I know you're on the road quite a bit. We basically uh, sat like a row away from each other a week apart in San Diego as well because you were at the underclass area code games. I came in right after that ended and saw the upper class area code games. So how did you enjoy San Diego, Ben? I guess if you want to start there, maybe there's a better event to start with for you. Yeah, better than North Carolina weather-wise, I can tell you that. Um, yeah, I was there better than pretty much anywhere. For- for the USA national team development program in one game, one seven inning game, they had four players leave the game with cramps. It was just so brutally hot and humid there. Um, And then one kid, like at one of the game, just like came in for an inning or what should have been an inning of relief, but had to leave early because he just walked behind the mound and was just puking. So, um, San Diego was a lot more uh, pleasant, I will say. But, I mean, the, the talent at both events were really good, which is what is obviously the most important um, thing. Area Codes is always one of the best events of the year because you're just getting, what, like 150, 170-something of the better players from around the country uh, playing in, I think it was four uh, uh, four games a day for five days is what we had. I don't know. What you yeah, had. yeah, we had four games a day for second, third, fourth. So for four days, um, so you, you get a pretty good look at a lot of the top players from mm. all around the country. Some guys I've seen before and just able to build more history on some players who I haven't seen either just because they're you know younger in the 2026 class or just some 2025s who haven't done a whole bunch of national level stuff but deserve to be ranked in our top 100 or, or top 50 prospects in baseball and then uh, we both got to see Ethan Holiday too which is always uh, always a single best player that I saw this summer yeah, well, I'm glad you saw some good players, Ben. I definitely saw some good players, too, but I also think this is probably the most down showcase circuit tour that I've done since I started at BA, and I think 
the consistent chatter throughout the industry scouts I was talking to, like everyone seemed to think all the events they went to, it was down as well. Uh, so you've been warning me that, yeah. So, so you were to be clear, if listeners don't know, I was watching almost entirely 2024 prospects. Ben is already on to 2025s and some 2026s. Ben has warned me. And I think maybe we've mentioned it a little bit on this podcast already that the 2024s, uh, the class is, let's say, wide open. Maybe that's a, a generous way of putting it at the top um, on both the high school and the college sides. I wasn't at East Coast this year, East Coast Pro, which is what it sounds like. A lot of the best players on the east side of the country. Um, scout run event that's always really good. Sounds like that event was down. Um, most of the feedback I was getting from scouts at area codes was that area codes in general was down. And I think specifically... Normally, the, the teams that, that have the most talent, just given the pools they're pulling from, are the Brewers, which is a Southern California-based team, the Rangers, which is a Texas-based team, and the Nationals, which is a Southeast-based team. Those are kind of the heavy hitters. All of those teams were pretty down this year, especially Texas and the Southeast team. I think partially this is because a lot of the Southeast kids in particular who you would have expected to see on the roster just weren't at the event. I think this is maybe a combination of like a smaller window for the summer. The fact that East coast pro exists, there are a lot of players who will go to East coast pro and not also do area codes. Um, the brewers are better than they've been the past. I was just saying, then you have the baseball factory, all America game, Mm. which you were at, which is like, you know, right after area codes, they got the PG all America game this weekend. So there are some players were just like, exactly. You have to travel. <laughs> if you're a player, you have to kind of pick and choose your spots. You you can't go to all these events. Um, it, it's Some difficult travel wise. Like January, February too. Exactly. So don't so don't blame them at all for that. But just in terms of the talent we got to see, probably one of the worst years. The White Sox, um, upper Midwest Midwest team, far and away the most impressive team I would say just overall. And, and like relative to a normal year, I think it was a phenomenal year for that team. So like Caldwell was pretty impressive leading off for that group. Caleb Bonimer, another really impressive player for me this summer. Um, but yeah, I think the general, the general talk around the industry about this summer is kind of a, a down class. But from our perspective, and I think even from a player perspective, like it is wide open at the top. There's not there's not a player who's entrenched as this top prospect who's not moving out of that position. It's kind of like you have a year to make your case and move up the board. So I think it will be a fun class to cover just kind of for the horse race. Who, who takes a step forward? Um, who takes a step backward? Who performs? There's going to be a lot of movement on our 2024 list, I imagine. And it feels like it's going to be hard to find a consensus because I was asking – as many scouts as I could, like, who's your top guy? Who's your top guy? And I, I did not come away with like one clear answer. It's mostly like a big group of players. Um, but yeah, the, the hangover from 2023 starts now. Yeah. Were there any players who like, who've come up as for that number one spot more consistently? Because I mean, when I look at it, I see like you compare it to the 2023 draft where, I mean, this time a year ago, I would have said, yeah, Max Clark, Walker Jenkins, like these guys could be, you know, not just top 10 overall picks, but in consideration to be one, one type guys. Um, this was before Paul Skeens turned into <laughs> Paul Skeens, but um, you know, those two guys, um, 
Noble Meyer, Thomas White, two guys yeah. like you know that are top two pitchers, top two high school pitchers yeah. in the country. Like I just look at those four players. I don't think there's a position player who matches with any of those guys. I don't think there's a pitcher who matches no. up with either Meyer or White. And nope. I, I think, you know, obviously there will be high school players who go in the first round and, and who go in the top 15 overall mm-hmm. picks. But, like, there's not one where I'm like, oh, this guy is definitely going to be a top 10 overall pick in yeah. the draft. No, I think I think you're right. That's kind of how I see it. You get a little bit more of, of a consistent feedback on the college side. It seems like J.J. Weatherholt specifically is a player that scouts like. But on the high school side – Especially because it, it sounds like Connor Griffin and, and Derek Curiel just didn't have a great summer overall. I know Curiel was good at PDP League, but, I mean, he was my favorite guy entering the summer. I'd seen him a lot more than a lot of these other players as an underclassman. He always performed, and he really just looks the same physically and didn't have the same sort of performance um, offensively, wasn't really driving the ball hard. I know he dealt with a finger injury early on in the summer, Connor Griffin, kind of same deal. Sounds like he wasn't great at East Coast. Um, the performance has been up and down for him. And, and those are top two high school players on the board right now. Uh, Owen Pano, same kind of thing. A lot of rolled over ground balls. He hit a few balls hard. He looked fine at shortstop. But there wasn't this, like, wow performance like a Termar Johnson had, uh, like Bobby Wood Jr. had a few years ago. Um, players who performed well, I think P.J. Morlando has gotten a lot of positive feedback um kate aaron Day has been was was pretty good for me at area codes um there are some other players <laughs> yeah. yeah a monster arm and really what impressed me most with, with aaron Day was the power and his ability to access power to the opposite field there were only i think you could count on one hand the number of players who showed oppo power in batting practice aaron Day was one of those and he also hit for power to the opposite field in game in addition to turning on a ball. So he hit multiple home runs there. Um, he hit a ball off the top of the batter's eye at, in BP at uh, PDP at carry on the main field. Yeah, he, he showed some pretty loud raw power. And I think there's a chance that Aaron Beattie is a, a pretty polarizing prospect because he is very advanced physically now, and so there are going to be some teams that are like, what are we projecting on here? It's a right-handed hitting high school catcher. And as we just talked about Blake Mitchell, like high school catcher is not a, a demographic for everybody. But I am curious how you view a guy like Kate Aaron Bide versus a player like Blake Mitchell, another high school catcher who has a big arm. I think they're very different players, but I think in terms of talent and where they could wind up going in the class could, could wind up being fairly similar. I like Cade's defensive ability better than Blake Mitchell's. And I probably would prefer a left-handed hitting catcher, but I think Aaron Beatty's performance already is better than what I saw from Blake Mitchell last summer in, in these same sort of events. I'm curious how you view those two. Uh, I think Aaron Beatty has more raw power. I think Aaron Beatty's still more power than pure hit. Um, hmm. some struggles of PDP with contact in game, but he, I mean, he has enormous power. Um, the, you know, the, and the way the swing works, it's more conducive to, um, to power than, you know, just pure, pure contact. But, uh, the defensively, you know, I, I've said it before, but you can't ask for too much more from a 
17 year old catcher behind the plate. I mean, getting legitimate low one seven pop times in games. It's, it's a 70 arm at least. And he gets rid of the ball so quickly. Uh, the, such a, such good footwork and efficient, very swift transfer, accurate throws, like making and making throws, accurate throws from on pitches where it's like, he'll have to backhand pick a ball in the dirt and he'll still do it so cleanly and so fluidly and still make a strong, accurate throw. So I think there's a team that's just going to absolutely fall in love with the combination of that and the chance for a catcher who has, you know, 25 plus home run type power. But there's also going to be other teams that are going to say "Uh, track record of high school catching is not great to say the least. And it is more, you know, more power than pure hit. Uh, But at the same time, like, you know, there's a lot of other players, both on the high school and college side this year, who have a good amount of question marks of their own, even within our top, uh, you know, top 10, 20 players in the class. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with him. Another player that I, I really liked was Charlie Bates, um, shortstop out of California, Stanford commit. He was on the NorCal team at the area codes. Just really like his actions defensively, like his approach offensively depending on how this class unfolds not sure how much of a factor he's going to be in the draft just given how these stanford commits have operated in the past really hard to to sign those guys out of school Um, but with how wide open it is like i like him as much as any of the shortstops i've seen in the high school class to this point bryce rayner was impressive to me but i'm curious what you think about this i was more impressed with him on the mound he got on the mound through just one inning at area code games and it was a super easy 95 96 really good breaking ball he was he was fine offensively he didn't do anything that like stood out in one direction or another i think he got pitched around a little bit and was happy to kind of take his walks uh hit a few balls hard didn't look crazy offensively like i could see him being a third baseman he's got a strong arm but like on the mound I was like, wow, th- this guy's a really good pitcher. I wish he was pitching more often. Um, so where where do you view him? We have him listed as shortstop right-hander. How do you view him as a hitter versus a pitcher? Because I, I came away really impressed with what he did on the mound. Yeah, that's what people who see him have seen him on the mound. <laughs> like they get pretty excited about his potential as a pitcher because it is a mid-90s fastball. Like you said, it sounds like it comes out pretty easy. Um, Some of the easiest velocity in that range that I saw of, of all of these, like there are a lot of players who are throwing mid nineties at this stage, which is crazy, but his was tremendously easy. Yeah. And he didn't pitch in 2022 um, or maybe in like December, I think maybe at the very end of the year, something like that. But you know, through the spring, through the summer, the fall, he didn't pitch. Uh, it sounds like he was back on the mound this spring. I don't think he pitched or I, I don't believe he pitched otherwise this summer. Um, so it's a much more limited track record of pitching relative to some of the other guys who are, you know, pitchers only, um, mm-hmm. or, or even a, you know, a two-way player like, a, you know, say like a Cam Caminiti or, or a Noah Franco mm-hmm. in this class. But um, 
there's yeah people will be definitely <laughs> very uh closely following him on the mounds assuming he he does pitch this spring which i, I certainly certainly hope he continues to do it i hope he does a, a comp that i heard that i think is a really interesting one is jack flaherty and looking back in 2014 because he's he a harvard ranked- westlake guy yeah, that that could be a good one too. But yeah, both yeah. both California guys. Flaherty was a two way player. Our report in 2014, when he ranked as number 39, we said uh, scouts regarded Flaherty as a better prospect at third base thanks to his stroke, um, clean arm action, fast arm action. He was 88, 92, touching 93, command and control were advanced for his age. So I do think there's some similarities there. And I've heard that, that Bryce prefers hitting over pitching. I really hope. I, I think a lot of the two-way players in general, like Noel McLean is another one who was, who was just drafted in 2023. Two-way player, it sounds like he really likes hitting, but I think his upside is higher on the mound. I th- again, I, I'm still not writing out Bryce as a, a hitter by any means. I think he's got some really exciting tools as both a, a left-handed hitter and a defender. But man, I know there are a lot of teams that are a lot more excited with him on the mound after what he showed at area codes. And I'm curious to see how he, he kind of splits that balance moving forward. He was, he was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. I I like Charlie Bates too. He was, I I like his swing. I think he makes a lot of contact really has a ability to manipulate the barrel and, you know, in games, it's more singles, occasional doubles type power, but when he lets it loose in BP, he can drive it over the fence. He's he's six one. There's more room to to fill out. Like I, I like that foundation of a of that he has as a you know six one lean left handed hitter who has good actions at shortstop, who I think can stick at the position uh, and who has the ability to square up you know different types of pitches. has a has a good approach at the plate has more power I think that's going to come that you can project on uh, both both raw power and in-game power that should come more for him so um, you know we have him in our top 10 for for the high school class right now but he's he has a type of skill set where I could see him putting on some more strength in the offseason and if he you know continues to uh, perform at a higher level which I, I think he will um, mm. I could see him as somebody who could continue climbing even higher. Yeah, a few other pitchers that impressed me were um, Joey Oki, right-handed pitcher out of Iowa, William Schmidt mm. out of uh, Louisiana, and then maybe some of the best pure stuff that I saw all summer was uh, Lazaro Cholera. He was really good at East Coast Pro, it sounds like. I saw him a few other times outside of that at, at the Baseball Factory All-America game. He maybe showed some of the best pure stuff. He was 94-96. Again, it's it's an All-America game, so it's one-inning look. He got three whiffs on the fastball. The slider was low 80s, 81-83. Really hard, late bite. I mean, it was one wild pitch, but for the most part, he was putting the stuff in the zone. Struck out a pair of batters. He walked one, probably should have been called strike three on the guy that he walked. Um, so it was a pretty loud inning. I think maybe some of the best pure stuff that I, I saw. Anson Siebert would, would be up there as well. I think what's interesting about a lot of these high school pitchers is for a lot of the guys who, who show some of the best stuff, there's a lot of inconsistency from outing to outing and even within outings. Like Siebert came out in his first inning at the area code games and looked tremendous. And then his second inning, the velocity really backed up quite a bit. The command and control backed up quite a bit. 
Um, I think the same is true for another high school pitcher, Carson Wiggins. First two times I saw him, it was really electric fastball, breaking ball combination. It was around the zone. I was like, man, this guy looks like the best pitcher in the class. Third time mm-hmm. I saw him, I saw kind of a, like the 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 flip side of the coin with Wiggins, which I'd heard about. It's just a little more erratic, uh, really struggled to get the ball over the plate, threw a lot of pitches. Um, so I think there is no, like you said, there's no Noble Meyer or Thomas White where you have a pitcher in this class who, who has the combination of elite, pure stuff with the touch and feel that makes you a top half of the first round sort of talent as a high school pitcher. And I'm curious to see if, if someone will move forward with that and kind of establish himself later in the process, because the last few years we've had noble Myers, we've had Andrew painters, Jackson Jobs, we've had Mick Abel's like, I don't think we have a player like that. We have similar stuff. We just don't have the, the pitcher who has, who's like harnessing that stuff with really advanced control or consistency. Yeah, I think of the guys uh, you mentioned. I mean, William Schmidt really jumps out to me. High school pitcher out of Louisiana. Really good frame, like 6'3", 180, 180-ish. Uh, I, I saw him up to 95 this summer. And obviously, it's a really good fastball for his age. But, the, I mean, he has one of, if not the best, curveball in in the country for a high school pitcher. I mean, just an absolute hammer great shape um it's hard you know spinning it above 3000 rpm like you see a lot of guys now with sliders and all that but like it's a true like old school almost (laughs) uh 12 to 6 pitch um it's gonna miss a lot of bats for him Uh, and i i think if he comes out another guy where if he just gets stronger puts on you know some more more size and strength if he's throwing you know touching 97 98 i think he's another guy who you know while we already have him ranked pretty high is another guy who i think could uh move up a lot of good arrows pointing in the right direction for him and then you mentioned joey Oki is just going to be the most fascinating guy i think to watch because i mean when you saw him at area codes i had just seen him the week before at the ntdp which is an event for mostly 25s and 26s. But he he's from Iowa, and Iowa plays their high school baseball in the summer. So, like, he didn't do summer showcase stuff until NTDP, right? And he's, you know, our number 14 high school player in the country and, like, probably the number – I mean, I guess it depends how you classify some of these guys as like pitchers versus hitters ahead of him. But like, you know, one of the elite high school pitchers certainly in the country. So when I saw him there, I was probably I think that was his first outing Mm. on like the national stage of the summer. But the reality is most scouts were not there that week because it's, you know, they're more focused elsewhere on the 24s. So when they everybody saw him at area codes was probably the the big outing uh for him but his stuff moves like crazy i mean it's a mm-hmm. uh, lower slot guy he's been up to 96 uh i know i haven't looked at the don't have the, or i don't have the track man stuff like in front of me right now but i got like, you it right moves, here it, it moves like absolute there's just so much arm side run on mm-hmm. his fastball you don't need to see the track man to <laughs> to, to know that and then his slider um has 
really good bite and good movement going the exact opposite direction too so he did actually get hit around a little bit in in the mm-hmm. outing i saw but again like his first national outing outside of iowa for the summer and the stuff was still really good so then it's like well all right what's going to happen in the spring when he's back in iowa like how scouts just don't have as much history mm-hmm. and track record with him relative to some of the other players who've been on the circuit a little bit more curious to see what he ends up doing in the fall too if he goes to jupiter or, or some other events yeah. but uh, i think he's just going to be one of the most fascinating guys to to watch just given the combination of talent and his situation being a, an mm-hmm. iowa prep player yeah, he was one of the most impressive pitchers I saw at the area code games. I think just pulling up my notes on him now, I think it was probably the best slider that I saw at the event. I had a pretty consistent plus grade on that pitch. Tons of movement. He landed the pitch well. It's just like sweepy 83 to 86 mile per hour pitch with RPMs yeah. in the 2600 to 2900 range. First Power, inning, he was yeah. pumping. Yeah, he was pumping 95, 96 in the first. Settled into 91-94 in his next two innings with that running life, like you mentioned. Um, he struck out five batters in three innings, looks like. A couple walks. But, yeah, one of the most electric arms I saw at that event. And then we talked about William Schmidt earlier. One of the better curveballs that I've seen, like you mentioned, with his breaking ball. He struck out uh, five and in two innings at PG National. Really high spin breaking ball. Tons of depth. 91 94 he was really impressive i think both of these players are like bigger right handers that have a lot of room to fill out with their frame still too they're like good bodies um so they were definitely two highlights a lot of a lot of interesting stuff in this class even if there's not again like i said the that one pitcher you can point to as like the really good advanced strike throwing command control pitcher who also has that stuff but i think there's a chance for someone to to step into that role um, but I it was fun think, to watch both these guys. Yeah, pitch. I do think this class has a a, a depth of pitching where mm-hmm. there's going to be guys who break out and take that next step forward. You know, whether it's this fall or next spring. I mean, the high end guys like uh, you know the guys we talked about are like Tegan Coons, Owen Hall, Chase Mobley, like those those kind of guys. But like, I mean, Zach Swanson, Levi Sterling. Zach Swanson, uh, I'm glad you mentioned him. I think every time I saw him, I highlighted his name because this performance was super loud. I think one of the more consistent performers that I saw this summer. And to your point about the pitching depth, we're doing a, a piece on like summer standouts, um, like showcase all-star team, essentially, where we run through each position. It was tough for me to feel confident in the hitters that I had on this, but I had, I think, maybe 20 to 30 pitchers i feel like that could make a case on my list that i was just looking through and i'm gonna have to go over all my notes and and really put it together to to feel confident about who those guys are but like the pitchers we mentioned the pitchers you were just going through bryce navarre chase mobley braylon Doty was good siebert swanson levi sterling um mason brasfield maverick rizzi just a ton of names. Um, Boston Bateman was super interesting. Trey Gregory Alford showed really impressive stuff. Ryan Sloan showed a great breaking ball. Like I, I do think you're right. This, I'm curious how the pitching depth of this class will stack up with 2018, which for me is kind of like the pinnacle of high school pitching depth in a draft class. 
Yeah, I think like Kate Townsend, Johnny King, uh, Bryce Message. There's there's a whole bunch of guys who are um, good pitchers and ho- waiting for them to, you know, so, some of those guys will take the next leap forward. It's just at the same time, they're still high school mm-hmm. pitchers and all of the risk that comes with it. But, but yeah, I like, I like Levi Sterling quite a bit. I mean, he's super... Mm-hmm young for the class like he's still 16 years old he should be in a younger class but he's 6'4 190 pounds throws a ton of strikes a lot of pitch ability really good feel for manipulating uh, a pretty wide array of secondary pitches it's it's very much a starter look uh, fastball is is trending up touching i think 93 94 now I, i'm sure there's more coming in there so um he's another guy who i could see uh ticking up even if he's not i'm say he's like only touching 94 like that's pretty <laughs> freaking good at 16 years old but even if he's not throwing quite as hard as like you know your uh you know your carson wiggins or, or zach swanson uh of the world yeah you know who the best player i saw this summer was though who was it did you see did you see uh, Jackson Churio? No, I didn't. No, high school right. player, best high school player I saw. I should I should qualify that. I I do know because uh, our pot. Believe it or not, you actually said it already on this episode. <laughs> yeah, that's, dude, that's Ethan how, Holiday. That's how long he, our episodes are. <laughs> he needs to reclassify for 2024 so he can have a clear and obvious number one prospect in the class. This kid is he's, a freak, Ben. <laughs> he's I'd seen video 2025. Yeah, which would make him just a slam dunk number one for 2024. The, the models would lose their minds over him. But <laughs> this was the first time I saw him live. I was just setting up for open side BPs at the Baseball Factory event. And even before that, like some of the scouts I was talking to were kind of just laughing at how ridiculous Ethan Holiday was just in like the cages, the way he was hitting the baseball. <laughs> and I, I had the camera set up, so we have video of all these guys. But I, I just took my phone out because I'm like, I'm going to send this um to the guys just so they can see Ethan Holiday really quickly and the first swing he took the sound off the bat i just started laughing to myself like he should not be hitting the ball that hard he's already he he fits in and is more physical than a lot of the players in the 2024 class as a 2025 prospect i i mean he he looks super fun and the fact that he's not in this 2024 class makes me so upset because it would make my life a lot easier rankings wise and just the loudness off the barrel in that BP, how easy the swing is, how fluid it is. And then in game two, it wasn't, it wasn't just like a BP show. Like he was the best performer in the game. He won the MVP award. He had a really impressive at bat where he, I think it was one, two, he took a slider, the opposite field, um, for a double hard hit ball second ab turns around velocity right back up the middle for a hard hit single um it was just really impressive i i don't think he's as good defensively as jackson holiday was but at his age offensively he's he's way ahead of where jackson was which is is pretty scary um and he's he's a super exciting prospect man it was fun to see yeah physically and defensively i think they're just different types of players right like Ethan mm-hmm. is six foot four already. He's like six four, yeah. 
probably close to 200 pounds. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's built more like his dad, right? He's gonna Yeah, you'll like hear this a million works. times between now and his draft. Like, Ethan looks more On like his podcast, dad. Yeah. Jackson <laughs> looks more like his mom. When scouts went to see Jackson, everyone thought he was Ethan because Ethan is bigger. But they, they are different players, but they're both really, really fun. Hey, I, I definitely think – I'm curious. Do you think Ethan – it's, we've got plenty of time, obviously. He's, he's he's in the 2025 class. I'll pump the brakes on my excitement for him. But when I saw him taking ground balls, I definitely thought he was more of a third baseman than a shortstop. What do you think on his chances to stick up the middle? I, I think he, you know, continue at shortstop for now. I think sure. long term. Like, he, you know, he said he's six foot four at 16 years old. I don't know. Might not, his dad is six foot four. Might not be done growing. Like he might end up even bigger. Mm. Um, so I, I think ideally third base would be great. Um, if mm. not corner outfield, if he hits the way, uh, certainly I know you project him to hit. It's the, the not going to matter, or it might not matter because it's yeah. His position I, is I hitter. Mean, he it's it's a very it's a very easy swing. I mean, offensively, that's where they have. What they have in common is it's such they both have such smooth and compact and easy, easy, easy left-handed swings. And the way they track and process pitches is extremely advanced. Uh, Ethan is just a, a very, very advanced uh, player in terms of his pitch recognition, his strike zone discipline, think it almost like works against him to a certain extent because just at this level because there are pitches that are he'll lay off that are just outside the strike zone if you're talking about a major league strike zone but in high school uh, umpires just call a bigger strike zone because otherwise mm-hmm. you would just the be games there take forever. five hours yeah <laughs> yeah because you know the kids just don't have the control you have at the major league or minor league or even the you know, at the college level, when you're talking about 16 year old high school pitchers, mm-hmm. most of whom are not going to be, um, you know, professional uh, players or anything like that. So, um, but his, you know, you can see it in, like he instantly tracks the ball uh, and is able to identify pitches quickly out of the pitcher's mm-hmm. hands. So it's, it's going to be a lot of walks, just like his brother. I don't think it's the same level of pure back control and back to ball that. Jackson has, uh, but it's like, again, it's such an easy swing. It's going to be high on base and the power upside is obvious. And it's not even just like, it's not just like he's yanking balls either. Like you Mm. probably saw his approach there. was like, yeah, both his game, both his impact was yeah. Straight up the middle oppo. Like the, the the ABs are impressive because it was an 82 mile per hour slider in a one-two count that he just drove backside down the left field line for a double 92 up the middle. Like I said, like none of it was like pulling off the ball or, or cheating on fastballs. His one strikeout came against uh, cholera, I believe and this dude is shoving in one inning and 83 mile per hour slider. Out. But all of his at bats, I think were solid. The one other tool I think that the Jackson has pretty significantly above Ethan. And I'm curious how this will develop for him is the speed. He didn't, really look like a runner and, and i'm not too worried about it because i think like you said his position at the end of the day is hitter he's gonna hit he's gonna hit for power he's gonna get on base um but jackson definitely seems like a a, a twitchier quicker athlete than than ethan at least 
obviously he's got a couple of years, so maybe he'll get faster. But he just looks more like a power-oriented player than Jackson. Yeah, I guess that's the good and the bad when your brother is the number one prospect in baseball <laughs> and number one pick in the draft is like, you know, you get a lot more attention, obviously, as a result. Mm-hmm. You know, they were teammates the year that uh, uh, Jackson went number one overall. But then at the same time, you get uh, constantly compared to the number one <laughs> prospect yeah. in baseball because yeah. he is uh, your brother. But um that's why he's also the number one prospect for, uh, you know, our 2025 high school class too. So uh, obviously a super, super, super talented, uh, talented family. Who are the, who are the highest, highest drafted brother pairing in, in baseball? Do you know, like, the is there Uptons. any obvious group that I was looking up the Uptons right now? Cause I thought they were the top. It was where well, they were one to two, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Justin went 1-1 in 2005. BJ at the time, then BJ went uh, 1-2 in the 2002 draft. So obviously a very high bar to clear, but hey, Jackson has already uh, has already cemented the first part of that. So imagine if, if Matt Holliday is sitting there with two, two sons who go 1-1 overall in the draft. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty wild. It was funny walking out of the USA Baseball Complex too one day, where I could see Ethan and his, you know, his dad Matt was there too. Um, they're walking out of the complex. Uh, Matt stops to sign an autograph for somebody. Uh, I did see Ethan signing some autographs too, so he's already uh, in demand from the collectors. But uh, then they're like walking out of the complex, and then uh, they walk right by. When you exit, they walk right by a giant blown up uh, poster that says like USA Baseball uh, Jackson Holiday, number one overall pick. <laughs> Good photo opportunity, Ben. Should have snapped that one. Uh, Could have. <laughs> De- declined. It was, uh, but it was funny though. No, that is that is cool. So it'll be fun to it'll be fun to watch Ethan progress throughout his career so yeah no that was the summer for me yeah no i think it uh yeah it was definitely a a fun summer trying to plan out stuff for uh for the fall now so i'm sure jupiter will be another um good one good going to jupiter i think so yeah it's probably like the best probably it's gonna be a party then because i think i think you're going there i'll be there and i think peter's planning on going there i don't know if teddy teddy normally goes i'm not sure if he's going this year or not but We'll have a blast in Jupiter. That'll be that'll be great. I'm excited for it. I think that's the next big trip for me too. But I am looking forward to kind of collecting all my notes and it should be the entirety of next week. Um, pretty pretty in depth notes on basically like a hundred of the players that I saw this summer. So excited to get that actually published and, and up there for you guys to see. Nice. All right. Anything else, Ben? Before we wrap this episode up? No. Let's head out. Let's get out of here. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Um, happy to be back on the mic. Uh, like like we were just talking about, travel's dying down a little bit, so we should be back with our weekly schedule. Um, but yeah, lots of stuff on the site this week. Yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. If you guys want to rate the show, if you haven't, that would be great. If you want to share the show with another baseball prospect-loving friend, that would really help us out as well. But uh, for Ben, I'm Carlos. So long, everybody.